0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm uh, Josh Astro-Clark, and there's Charles uh, uh, Afterburn Bryant. Okay. And Jerry Goose-Roland is out there. Wait, do you call me Afterburn because I'm gassy? (laughs) Yep.
0: (laughs) Although we've been we've been tooting for a year straight. No one even... No one knows care.
1: except us. Have you ever set one of your ducks on fire?
0: Have I ever lit a fart?
1: I was hoping to not <laughs> use that word, but yes.
0: Uh, yeah, I used to... There was a, a period in my youth where I thought that was just about the funniest thing ever. And I still think it's pretty hysterical. I just don't do it.
1: I never thought it was funny. I've always just been more wowed by it, you know? It's... I
0: mean, the notion of it now, as I've gotten older, is more funny than the act itself. Yeah, but The notion agreed. that we can expel flammable gas from our butt. Exactly.
1: It's pretty great. And then do you remember that cautionary tale that, um, that if you lit it, it could travel up into your rectum uh, yeah, and, and yeah, cook yeah. your insides?
0: Some sort of a reverse uh, thing. Th- yeah, there must no. have
1: just been like some, I don't know, some department somewhere, some obscure federal agency that was tasked with coming up with – fake cautionary tales to scare kids out of doing <laughs> things that that where they weren't behaving you know
0: yeah and i think what my most cherished memories were the times where people swore that it wasn't possible
1: <laughs> that oh that you couldn't light it that it wouldn't work
0: yeah yes. so proving proving that was always sort of the most fun totally. because it was just like hilarity ensued
1: <laughs> and also you just great. got to be like in your face <laughs> Like literally, come down here because I'm going to light this in your face. If you're just so sure it's not going to catch fire.
0: And I always had a theory that it would get rid of the smell kind of instantaneously too. I think it would just burn yeah, it up. I think
1: it did. So it's really an efficient way of clearing the air. What are we doing? Well, we're talking, Chuck, about space junk. And actually, yeah, not that the whole, band. That whole thing. What? There's a.
0: I immediately had to look it up because I was going to say great band name, but there's a band out of Buffalo named
1: Space Junk. Oh, oh yeah, out of Buffalo. I guess that I guess that um that oh affords being mentioned, sure. Sure. Um okay, so space junk, not the band, the actual stuff. Stuff floating around in space. Yes. Turns out there's a lot of it. And I actually have a little bit of an intro here. I'm gonna do a little um a little Oh, it wasn't
0: the the toot lighting?
1: No. <laughs> that was a pre-show tangent. Okay. Uh, I think is that classification. No, um, back in the 70s, there was a guy who worked for NASA called Donald Kessler, and he was an interesting cat in and of himself. But one of the claims to fame that he has is that his name became synonymous with a, um, uh, a an unstoppable chain reaction of collisions of space junk called mm-hmm. the Kessler syndrome, and the Kessler syndrome that Kessler came up with is based on this idea that if you get enough stuff floating around in orbit around Earth, eventually this stuff is going to smash into other stuff up there, because these things are traveling at very high speeds. And when they smash into one another, they're going to potentially break into more and more pieces. And then those pieces are going to go on, and they're going to smash into other things. And so this chain reaction will begin to where there's just pieces constantly smashing into one another, and all of a sudden, we're trapped on Earth, because we can't make it through the debris field we accidentally created, Mm -hmm. hence the the Kessler syndrome has struck again. Like a like a fart being lit in your face, but in the face of humanity <laughs> as a whole.
0: Yeah, and I think some uh, some scientists these days say that parts of our orbit are already like that, right?
1: Yeah. There. Yes. Yeah, so Kessler was basically saying he made these predictions in the seventies, um, and he he said based at the rate that we're going, it'll probably will reach a critical mass in about thirty to forty years. And a lot of people said. Well, we've reached that point, and I think Kessler is actually right. The thing is we can't really see everything that's up there, so we have to make guesses and assumptions. We actually track a very respectable amount of space junk, considering uh, that we're just down here on Earth, that we actually can track things going really fast, that are really small, traveling really far above the Earth, but there's a lot of it that's just too small for our current technology to track, so we have to make guesses about uh, what all's up there, and it looks like there's a lot of stuff up there, and it's possible we have reached critical mass, and this, this cast skating collision the chain reaction just hasn't started yet.
0: Yeah, I mean I was just about to correct myself when I said some people say it's already there that I didn't mean it's all just so people understand it's already like we can't travel through these places no. but that process has started such that it can't be reversed like even if we stop launching anything. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's too late.
1: Yeah, once that chain reaction starts, I mean, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. I mean, we can't even get a lot of the space junk that's up there out now. I can't imagine when they've started on a chain reaction. That's got to make catching it even, even more difficult. So a lot of people say, well, let's— do everything we can to avoid that cascading collision, that Kessler syndrome from ever starting. And a lot of people sitting out there, Chuck, I'm guessing, are like, wait, what are you guys talking about with Space Chunk? What is a Space Chunk? Yes, I'm well-versed with the band from Buffalo. Uh, I have all of their (laughs) CDs. I got them all for free, just walking past this one street corner many times over multiple years. (laughs) But I don't know about the actual space junk, and it never occurred to me that the band space junk is based on a real thing.
0: Right. So, space junk, I kind of always assume people knew what this was, but we've made that assumption before yeah. about things like, I don't know, trees. <laughs> right. And people had said, why don't you describe what a tree is? The parrots. <laughs> so, uh, oh, by the way, thanks for all the parrot pictures from all over the world. Yeah, we've been Those getting Those have been months. delightful. Yeah. Uh, but space junk is... You know, it can be a lot of things. NASA actually has uh, sort of a list that describes it better than we could. Um, A lot of it is abandoned spacecraft or spacecraft that doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. So we abandon it. Um, This can be big, full spaceships, or it can be parts of spaceships, because as we'll learn, and as you know, if you follow, you know, if you're a rocket enthusiast, like those things break apart, and we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But there are many pieces that are quite large that are just sort of left up there, Uh, Until they come back down uh, or they hit something else. Yep. Um, Some of this stuff is, like I said, parts of rockets that have uh, broken apart, usually upper stage, Mm -hmm. because that lower stage stuff breaks off early enough to where it generally, you know, after a few years may tumble back toward Earth, burn up, hopefully, Mm -hmm. so where nothing actually hits Earth. But that upper stage stuff is kind of stuck up there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing that you'll you'll find out about things that we place into orbit. The further away from Earth that this thing is circling the Earth, um, mm-hmm. the the longer it's going to take to come back down to Earth. So the, yeah, di- makes sense. Yeah, because it's the force of gravity that pulls these things in orbit back down to Earth eventually, right?
0: Yeah. What else? Uh, what else do we have? Motor effluent.
1: Yeah. So a lot of unspent fuel. A lot of rocket fuel is solid fuel, and that includes. Yeah. I was looking it up. That includes ammonium nitrate, appropriately enough. Oh. But it also. Our old yeah. Um and enemy. Um, but it also includes gunpowder. Black gunpowder. That's what they use as solid rocket fuel sometimes, (laughs) which is like we've come really far, but also not far at all, you know? (laughs) Um, So there's canisters of of gunpowder floating around up in space, which are particularly problematic because not only can they break things apart, they can really break things apart because they may explode when they impact things going as fast as they travel.
0: Uh, And then the last thing, and we'll get to all the detail about all this stuff and why it's dangerous, but little bitty – little tiny things little tiny flecks of paint even millions of them
1: mm-hmm.
0: can cause a lot of damage uh i think there is you know reports from astronauts that say you know that work on the hubble that are like this thing looks like it a car that's been through a, a hailstorm yeah. you know <laughs> yeah it's just like get, getting constantly pelted and you think a speck of paint who cares but when these things are going 20 something miles an hour it can cause some damage.
1: Yeah, I think his uh, famous quote back to ground control was, "This thing looks like a seventy-two Nova."
0: They <laughs> went, "Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> yeah, it's the Hubble." Yeah.
1: So when we when we the, the the thing about space junk is that you have to remember is every single bit of it used to be here on Earth, and every single bit of it was launched by humans. That's just space junk. There's plenty of other stuff out in space like asteroids and comets and pieces of rocks flying around. That's not space BT's. junk. Yeah, ETs flying around. Um, that's not space junk. Space junk is specifically things that humans have launched into Earth. So there's this whole kind of air of, um, oh, I don't know the the actual word for it, but that we'd, we've we done this to ourselves. Like we've created our own problem and now yeah. we, we've made this bed that we have to lie in or figure out how to get out of, I think. Is
0: it's what so sure. human, yeah, isn't it? That like, <laughs> let's destroy the Earth, let's start destroying space. Mm-hmm uh because we may want to live up there so we might as well pre-destroy it yeah. before we get up there yeah. to really destroy it. Right. Uh,
1: and it makes sense though early on in in the um space programs, you know, starting uh, in the in 1957 with the launch of Sputnik. That's when the whole thing started. But you know, it makes sense that we had the technology to get things up there, but not to get them back down. And we knew that eventually their their orbit was going to decay. They would be pulled down into the atmosphere where it would probably burn up. So that made sense at the beginning of the space race. But as we got better and better at technology, the idea that we could just litter space became less and less acceptable. Mm-hmm. The problem is it didn't really go away. Like, there's still basically stuff that's being launched up there today that has no way of being brought back down. It's just like, we'll just leave it up there until it runs out of its useful life and then hope for the best. That's kind of how a lot of stuff is being launched into space right now. And it's particularly galling because we have the technology to bring it back down. It just makes the whole thing more expensive. And I think that that's why a lot of um, companies and countries don't include that.
0: Yeah, there's a, uh, a saying among contractors, a joke, if you will, okay. among contractors who build houses and fix up houses. Mm-hmm. If there's something wrong and that, that they're working on and there's the homeowner isn't around, they just say, can't see it from my house. <laughs> I've
1: not <laughs> and heard that's of that. That's kind of what's
0: been going on here <laughs> for years with, I mean, not only space agencies, but private companies, as we'll see Uh Amazon and and Tesla and all kinds of companies have plans to put a lot of lot more things into space, and it made me wonder like who's regulating this stuff. We'll, we'll get to all that, but what's kind of cool is since 1957, uh, when Sputnik was launched into space, NORAD started cat, uh, cataloging this stuff mm-hmm. and numbering them and naming them. And Sputnik is object number one. Yeah. And, you know, they they did, they did do a really good job of keeping track of a lot of this stuff, like you said, considering we're down here and it's up there. It's not too bad. Uh, things started breaking apart, though, and getting smaller and colliding with one another, creating hundreds and thousands of more smaller bits. Mm-hmm. But we kind of, you know, our technology progressed where we could go smaller in our tracking abilities. And so now the U.S. Department of Defense uh, started cataloging uh, anything basically Larger than, uh, I think, a softball?
1: I've seen grapefruit, too. So, yeah, basically that size. If you're not familiar with softballs, yeah, but grapefruit. you're crazy for citrus, it's grapefruit size, too.
0: If you don't know either one of those, I'm sorry. That's the best we can do. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Maybe two of your fists balled up. like a good. And I don't know how big your fists are. A good size snowball. Okay, sure.
1: <laughs> but somebody's like, but I'm from the tropics. I don't know any of this stuff. I'm from Buffalo. I know about snowballs and space junk. <laughs> that's right. And that catalog, Chuck, um, by the way, is pretty awesome. It contains not just Sputnik and all, every satellite ever created and every grapefruit-sized um, piece of debris, but there's some other really interesting stuff in there, too. Um, the cremated remains or the canister c- containing the cremated remains of Gene Roddenberry is one of them, the creator of sure. Star Trek. Um, yeah. The Tesla Roadster that um, SpaceX launched... Is up there. I was mad about that one. Yeah, it, it, especially when you start learning about like, space on. junk. You're like, this <laughs> yeah. is not a good idea.
0: Yeah, what we don't need to do is just do, like, PR stuff, <laughs> right, launching exactly. stuff into space. Yeah.
1: And then, you know, like, like um, uh, astronauts have lost entire boxes of tools on spacewalks before. Um, and they're just out there floating around, wrenches and stuff like that. They're all in the catalog.
0: I thought they kept that stuff tethered. You got to tether it.
1: Yeah, sometimes it gets loose, or they forget to tether it. Yeah. Astronauts, they they have hard days too. That's right. They have their 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 b game yeah. on some days. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but yeah, anything as small as a softball, there are about twenty thousand pieces uh, orbiting the Earth right now, mm-hmm. and then there are about half a million pieces the size of a marble or larger that NASA is tracking, mm-hmm. and then the paint flex just. Good luck with that. There's millions of that, and no one no one keeps track of it. Yeah,
1: and paint flexes Well, just because we can't, we definitely would if we could, but we just don't yeah, have the technology probably. right now. Because sure. there's so so there's three orbits. I don't want to do an episode on satellites one day, but just briefly, but there's three orbits: lower Earth orbit, middle Earth orbit, um, not to be confused with the Shire, and um, <laughs> uh, geosynchronous orbit, which is way up there, um, and that's where you're. Um, Communication satellites are. They're geostationary. They basically, if you stand in a spot and could look up and there was a satellite ahead of you or above you, it'd be there 24 hours a day, every day of the year. It's, com- it's, it's, it's moving in in line with one spot around the Earth. And, right. and to do that, you have to be really far out. The stuff that's further closer to the Earth travels the fastest, and it seems that lower Earth orbit is the most crowded, too. So the things that are in lower Earth orbit are traveling the fastest, and there's the most of them because it's the easiest to get to.
0: Right. Uh, I feel like that's a pretty good setup, if you include our two lighting stories. <laughs> sure. So maybe we should take a break and talk a little bit about some of the things they're doing to mitigate this right after this. So there's a lot of space junk out there, a lot of collisions happening. Um, When satellites collide, like I said, they can create just a very much bigger problem by creating lots more smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. And there are a few countries, the USA is one of them, China's one, India's one, that we have used missiles before. They're called anti-satellite weapons, ASATs, to uh, physically damage uh, a satellite. And basically what they do, it's very... You know, we all kind of laughed when Armageddon came out about sending people up there to drill holes and then drop bombs in it. But when you look at some of these things that we've thought to do, they're all kind of rudimentary like that. Like, let's just send something in there and ram it into a satellite. Yeah,
1: shoot a missile at that thing.
0: The old-fashioned way.
1: Yeah, that's called a kinetic kill model, which is – it's exactly that. You shoot a missile – at a satellite or something up in space, and you blow it into smithereens, as as uh, Yosemite Sam would say, right? So um, you don't want to do this, but a lot of countries do, like you listed. Um, they have not only just the technology, but have actually done this, have run these tests. And I think it's kind of a two show, two-fold show, show of force where mm-hmm. you're showing that, like, I can launch really technically sophisticated stuff up there that I don't want anyone else to know about, and then I can destroy it before you could ever possibly <laughs> find out about it. Yeah. Or totally. I don't like your satellite and what it's doing. I'm going to shoot that thing out of the sky. I just showed all of you that I'm capable of doing it. So, yeah. it, so it, it makes sense, I guess, in a geopolitical way, but up in space, it makes zero sense because when you blow up a satellite or something, you blow it up into thousands of pieces of... Um, that grapefruit softball snowball size um, uh, debris Mm -hmm. and then millions of smaller pieces. And all of a sudden, the population, that catalog of space junk just increased by 10 or 15 or 20 percent, depending on how big the explosion was and how much debris it created.
0: Yeah, and you might think because there have been satellites launched – basically continuously for, you know, many, many decades now, mm-hmm. that they're banging into each other at a decent rate. But that's actually not the case yet uh, as far as actual satellite collisions. Mm-hmm. In February 2009, the very first one happened, um, the Cosmos with a K, so you know where that one's from, <laughs> uh, the twenty Cosmos 2251 out of Russia, Collided and it was defunct. Uh, collided with, uh, I think a a private one from a U.S. company called Iridium, mm-hmm. which sounds like a total sci-fi movie bad guy company.
1: I know. Don't you think? I don't actually know. It doesn't strike me like that. I get what you're saying, but I think it's a very pleasant word. Oh, okay. It makes me think of the uh, the Rainbow Centrum vitamin logo, kind of. Oh, yeah. Iridium. Uh, I find it very <laughs> pleasant. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, uh one guy's evil corporation is another guy's rainbow fighter. <laughs> That's right. Uh they were traveling at a speed relative to each other of about 22,000 miles an hour and blew them up into, you know, 2,000 pieces at least. Mm-hmm. Four inches in diameter, and then, like you said, thousands and thousands and millions of tinier and tinier pieces.
1: Right. So, this is the first time, that was 2009, where there were two satellites rammed into each other, as as far as we know. And I think— now, it hasn't the, happened again yet, right? No. But the thing is, is because there's so many satellites up there, and we're launching so many more, that— um, that that it's going to happen again. It's just inevitable that's going to happen again. Because you'll notice, you know, while the iridium satellite was um, operational, that cosmos one was inoperational. Meaning, there's no way to control it or move it. So the only way to avoid this collision is for the iridium controllers to move theirs. And I guess they didn't have the warning, or what? The, why they didn't move it? Because there's, as we'll see, there's a there's collision maneuvers where you just basically move your satellite out of the way if you think it's going to going to hit something but that didn't happen with this one and so because there's so many satellites that are defunct out there that are traveling in opposite directions at really high speeds of course this is going to happen again and the union of concerned scientists says that there's something like 3300 I, love that group. I know they're great um 3372 active satellites in orbit And at least 3,000 more inactive satellites in orbit right now. So it's definitely going to happen again.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists logo is, I looked it up, it's just um, a silhouette of two uh, folded arms with lab coat sleeves. (laughs) Scowling. (laughs) Scowling arms. So, yeah, it's going to happen again. Uh, I think there was one ESA official, the European Space Agency, uh, and this is paraphrasing, but said it's basically what we're doing is, like, every time a ship goes out to sea, just leaving it out there. Like, eventually, this is going to be a real problem. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's hard to imagine because it's in space, but let me liken it to the ocean and boats, and it might get through your thick skulls. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's basically a tragedy of the commons that we're seeing right now. Um, But the the commons are becoming more and more crowded as the days go by. That 3,372 active satellites in orbit, I think that was as of the beginning of 2021, the end of 2020, that was 1,000 more active satellites than there were in 2019
0: Yeah, the rate is picking up for sure. Like
1: exponentially. And one of the reasons why it's picking up exponentially is that um, a lot of companies, I think there's at least eight companies right now that have proposals to release um, what are called mega constellations. Or swarms of satellites, and you would you would need a swarm of satellites because these things in lower Earth orbit travel so fast that if say like you're connected to one for your cell phone, it's suddenly gone. So they hand it off to the satellite behind them, and behind them, and behind them, so that yeah. you get continuous service. So the more swarm of satellites you have, the more connected you could be. And so some of these proposals, like um, SpaceX's Starlink uh, swarm, um, it aims to. Create like global coverage of satellite internet service, so everyone, everywhere in the world, will be able to connect to really high-speed Wi-Fi because of this yeah. swarm. So there's a benefit to it, but at the same time, the SpaceX constellation requires twelve thousand satellites. There's only it's called a swarm. There's only thirty-three hundred up there right now, and Elon Musk is saying that he's going to add another twelve thousand just with his swarm. So th- all of these satellites that are going up and are in the process of going up are, are about to make the whole thing a lot more crowded. So, yes, the the likelihood of a collision just is increasing um, by pow- by orders of magnitude uh, every year from what I can tell.
0: Yeah, and, you know, obviously one of the big risks here, and we'll talk about all of them, something falling on, onto Earth and hurting people is one of the smaller risks, even though that has happened mm-hmm. Uh, when Skylab uh, very famously fell out in the Western Australian outback. Um, but we'll get to that. But that that's not the biggest risk. The biggest risk is for for damage and collisions up there. And we've got a lot of astronauts up there. We have people living on space stations. We have people working on that Hubble telescope. And I mean, when, that was the movie Gravity, right? That was space yeah. junk that caused their whole thing, right? Yeah,
1: they basically depicted a Kessler syndrome chain reaction um, I guess a localized one in that movie from from i'd totally forgotten about it, but I kept seeing references to it, so yeah, I, I kind of remember it now, like isn 't that why she had to take shelter somewhere with the ghost of George Clooney <laughs> hey, who wouldn't though you know did he even exist in that movie i don 't remember, yeah, okay, is there a theory that
0: he was not real?
1: No, I just didn't remember if, like, he, if, like, at the end they were like, and he never really existed. So he was there. <laughs> she was just remembering him later or imagining him there later on, right? I think so. I mean, I only saw that once. Same here.
0: Yeah. But um, even stuff, like we said, uh, as small as a paint fleck, if it's going 22,000 miles an hour, a one centimeter paint fleck can inflict enough damage as a or the same amount as a 550-pound object going about 60 miles an hour here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And if that goes up to 10 centimeters, it'd be comparable to a 7-kilogram TNT blast. (laughs) Paint flecks. Paint fleck. Marbles.
1: Yeah. Pretty amazing stuff, if you think about it. Um, And actually, they've had to replace windows on the space shuttle back when the space shuttle was in operation in the U.S., um and they, they there'd just be like deep gouges and streaks um taken out of the, the windows and when they would analyze and they'd be like, uh that's paint, paint flected that.
0: Yeah. And you know, the ISS and a lot of our work happens below where most of this stuff is, mm-hmm. but it's still a danger.
1: It is a danger. So, one of the reasons why it's a danger is because, again, um, the, the ISS is it's, – it's 250 miles above Earth, 403 kilometers above the surface. It's in lower mm. Earth orbit. Um, but it is one of the most vital pieces yeah. of space technology that's up there right now. Um, so, we want to protect it. We want to keep the ISS safe. Um, the problem is, is that there's a lot of stuff above it. And when that stuff eventually comes back down to Earth – it might pass by the ISS coming down. And then the stuff that's also in lower-Earth orbit around the ISS could run into it from the side or from the opposite direction um, or, like, at a 90-degree plane. So, the ISS is constantly under threat. And NASA's um, and I think the ESA, uh, a bunch of different agencies that use the ISS, have come up with procedures for basically moving it if, if there's a high enough chance that that a collision will occur. And when we talk about high enough chance, we're saying like a one in 100,000 chance is enough reason to move uh, the ISS out of the way.
0: Yeah, and they came up with a pretty, um, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but it's a pretty smart way to determine if it's dangerous or not. Mm-hmm. They said, we need to get an area around these things where uh, we can determine if it's, you know, basically a close call or not. And we're going to call it the pizza box because that's what it looks like. Sure. And everybody loves pizza. Everyone knows what pizza is. Do we have to describe that? Please. No. (laughs) We have an episode on pizza, so go listen to that. There's some some guy eating a
1: grapefruit who's like, never heard of pizza. (laughs) Uh,
0: But it's shaped like a pizza box. It's flat and it's rectangular. Uh, It's about 30 miles across, a mile deep, 30 miles long. And the idea is that, you know, imagine the ISS or whatever important satellite in the middle of this pizza box mm-hmm. in space. Mm-hmm. And they say, if anything, if we predict anything will come within the bounds of that pizza box, then that means that we have to get together and and decide what to do at least. Not necessarily take the action, because then you got to... Uh, determine the probability of collision, but that's when it gets their attention, I think.
1: Right. So, if they figure out that there's a 1 in 100,000 chance of of collision and moving the ISS isn't going to just be like, well, the mission's scrapped now because we needed Mm -hmm. the ISS three feet to the left um, and now we can't do anything, so just forget it. Just forget the whole thing. Um, They will move the ISS. If there's a 1 in 10,000 chance of collision – and it won't jeopardize the lives of the crew. Then they'll move the ISS, mission be damned. Um, th- right. They they don't take that uh, lightly. And then one other thing they might do <clears throat> if they don't have time to move the ISS, they'll put the um, crew into whatever capsule brought them there, if the Soyuz rocket that that brought them there is uh, docked, or mm-hmm. if um, one of SpaceX's um, Dragon capsules is docked, they'll they'll say go in there and hang out until this this uh, predicted um, collision passes. Uh, but to hang out there, like it's like a lifeboat, basically for them.
0: Yeah, that's the one. The only one that confused me a little bit. I mean, I get the idea that that's a a good idea to be sort of in the escape pod. Mm-hmm. But that escape pod can also be crashed as well.
1: Yes, good thinking. You would make a very fine NASA flight engineer because um, (laughs) I was reading an account of Scott Kelly, one of the Kelly twins, the astronauts who are just so great. Um, Scott Kelly was up on the ISS once as a commander, I think when he was spending that year in space. And um, there was a predicted collision uh, that was enough to tell them to go sit in the Soyuz rocket. And they said, but don't close the hatch because it's possible that the... (laughs) The capsule could get hit, and you might need to get out of the capsule really quick, too. But then, you know, if the ISS is hit, you can close the hatch very quickly and and, um, disembark, I guess. Uh, So, yeah, it's a good point.
0: (laughs) I wonder if they, like, they did that for the very first time. They said, just go get in the escape pod. Mm -hmm. I'm simplifying things, of course, Mm -hmm. for Star Wars fans. And they go get in the space pod and close the door, and they go, go, all right, we're all good now, right? And then they look at each other, and they're like— not really. <laughs> yeah, the, it was. It, we're, we're just in another thing.
1: It was an interesting account. They were, they were just kind of. He said it was a little tense, uh, but then I the imagine. time, the predicted time of collision came and went, and you know they were finally like, okay, can we can we get out now? But he said it was a little a little like it was very quiet, and they could just hear themselves and one another breathing, and that was about it.
0: But it, I mean, it's dangerous work, and they understand yeah. this. But mm-hmm. the goal is to bring them all back always, but. You know when you go in, you know, it's like being a firefighter or something. You know that there's a risk uh, that you might not come back. There's got to be.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. You just
0: want that to be as minimal as possible.
1: Yes, and they take uh, extraordinary measures to make sure that that it's as minimized as possible for sure.
0: Should we take another break?
1: I think so, man. And we're going to come back and talk about what to do about this space junk problem. Okay, so um, we, I think, have established that space junk is kind of a problem. And not just sure. for the ISS, not just for satellites. I think one thing we, we kind of left out is if these satellites, you know, crash into each other, there's somebody's DISH TV gone, yeah, how, are you going to watch, exactly. how are you going to watch the big game then? You're not. Yeah. So, right. space junk affects us one and all. And um, there's all sorts of other things that could happen um, if our satellites start going out. It's not something we want. We also don't want the crew of the ISS to get hurt. But also, eventually in the future, when we go back to the moon, and then when we travel beyond the moon, um, mm-hmm. we're going to be needing to go in and out of Earth's orbit and we don't want there to be some crazy debris field that we have to navigate around or wait to pass or whatever. So, this is something we need to, to mitigate right now. And it is just beginning to be something that um, some of the space agencies, not all, unfortunately, in some countries and some companies are starting to take seriously and figure out how to mitigate.
0: Yeah, I mean, think about space tourism and all these companies. They're like, hey, how'd you like to fly up there for $100,000? Exactly and risk being plowed into by paint flecks. <laughs> right.
1: A paint fleck. Being taken out by a paint fleck is just the undignified.
0: Uh, so the UN gets involved a little bit, and they say, hey, how about everyone, all you companies sending satellites up there, why don't you promise to remove these things twenty five at least 25 years uh, after the end of their mission? And everyone said, sure, we'll do that, UN. Um <laughs> How are you going to enforce that? And the U.N. says, I don't know. Yeah, We're asking nicely, though.
1: Right. All the space agencies kind of slowly encircled the U.N. and then grabbed it and gave it a wedgie.
0: <laughs> but people, I'm kind of joking, but people uh, in these agencies, they do know it's a problem, They and they are coming up with things kind of Armageddon-style. I mean, literally <laughs> space nets. What is
1: it with you in that movie? I
0: just always thought it was the dumbest thing. Like, how am I supposed to believe this? That this is how they're going to solve this problem, by just blowing this thing up, by drilling holes in it and putting bombs in it. Yeah. And then the more I read about stuff like this, the more I think that's an actual idea that they could do.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're like a, maybe a decade off from space mining, I would guess. Like mining yeah, asteroids.
0: So I, I just I feel like uh, I don't want to give Michael Bay credit okay. for coming up with a plausible thing because I just still want to say he's ridiculous. Okay. But it's not because they have space nets and they have space harpoons and space magnets. And these are some (laughs) of the things that they actually use to drag these things uh, close enough to where it falls out of orbit and then ideally burns up.
1: Yeah, like uh, remove debris, right?
0: Yeah, remove debris was – it was kind of cool. The European Space Agency said, you know what? We have this defunct satellite up there called the uh, Invisat and why don't we just put a bounty on this thing to see what people can come up with, and just say, you know, go hog wild and see what you can see what you can do, Bruce Willis.
1: Yeah, you got to tell them about Envisat and what it is and what it's doing right now through space.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's like a it's about the size of a school bus, and it's like it's being driven around by a drunk.
1: Yeah, like auto after he took some yeah. shrooms or something. <laughs> Totally. It's spinning uncontrollably through space. It's like actually one of the more dangerous things up there in the space debris fields right now.
0: Yeah, so they put out this call, said, who's got a good idea? Feel free to try it on the Invisat if if you want to get close to it. And uh, in 2018, a group from Surrey University came up with that remove debris uh, system where it was basically a ballistic module that attacked this stuff with a harpoon and a net, mm-hmm. And pushes or pulls it out of orbit and basically just kind of speeds up the process. It's not like they literally drag it back down to Earth and, you know, stand on it and get their picture taken. <laughs> Uh, but they disrupted enough to speed up the process that would inevitably happen anyway
1: yeah it 's kind of close to that though like there's the the test that they ran in two thousand and eighteen like the net was successful, the harpoon was successful, but then it 's supposed to also deploy a dragnet to like slow the thing down and then make it you know fall toward earth um, but the dragnet didn't didn 't go, but everything else did. Um And then there was another company, a Swiss company called Clear Space, that was working directly with the e s a to uh launch claws little claws that go seek and find mm-hmm. um space junk, clomp onto it, and then just basically drag it down and uh to its own death, kind of like you know the the guy that you just were you you pushed off the cliff and he grabbed onto your ankle, and then at the mm-hmm. last second he took you down with him, and you both go. That's Mm -hmm. what this claw basically does to this poor space chunk.
0: Yeah, the magnet thing kind of, and we did a show on magnets, and I remember it kind of broke my brain, Mm -hmm. but is there such a thing as a magnet that (laughs) when it attracts things— I'm glad there was
1: more to that question.
0: (laughs) When it attracts things that stick to the magnet, Uh those things also become magnetized?
1: Oh, that's a great question.
0: It's got to. Because, you know, what I'm getting at here is basically a magnet that just keeps growing and growing and growing uh-huh. and just spinning through the universe, collecting everything in its path until it's this giant thing.
1: Chuck, that is the very title of the third album by Buffalo Space Junk. <laughs> it was a long one, not as long as Fiona Apples, but I think it's second place. Her new album's great, by the way. I haven't heard it, but I imagine it's so. awesome. she's a genius. Uh, but I don't know.
0: It's probably a silly idea. Or maybe just a magnet big enough to collect enough stuff right. and then blow that thing up.
1: I would guess. I mean, I I don't think it's a silly idea. I think magnets probably are the wave of the future for this stuff because um, harpoons, nets, claws, uh, all of these things work for, say, intact satellites, large ones. And by the way, the ESA backed off of its Invasat bounty because it realized very quickly where – Many years off from being able to take something that large out of orbit, yeah um,
0: but so it's still going strong it is
1: it's still hurling uncontrollably through <laughs> space the size of a school bus um but the, the the still like large pieces that these things take, and as we've said, like smaller debris is a real real problem up in space, so I could see yeah. it being something like magnets or um, a whale shark's filter teeth kind of thing, but up in space that somehow collects debris in a bag. I, I don't know exactly. Like krill. krill? Yeah, basically like treating it like krill. We need a, we need a robot space shark, space whale shark. we
0: swam with uh, whale sharks a oh, hundred years
1: ago? Of course. Can you imagine ever forgetting that?
0: That was so long ago. Isn't that crazy?
1: It really was. It was a good decade, right?
0: No, it had to be. I would guess. So. I'm just sort of marveling that we're still doing this
1: job. <laughs> I know. we got a long time left, too, so wake up.
0: I hope so. Uh, are you telling me to wake up or everyone else?
1: Everybody else.
0: Okay. Um, there are also uh, deorbiting. I mean, we have successfully and other companies have successfully deorbited satellites. It is a thing. We don't leave everything up there. Um, SpaceX, I remember, you know, very famously, they have the uh, the Falcon rocket that was able to come back down to Earth and be and docking again it was super cool
1: yeah you know who uh, thought to that be, was excellent to reuse it Don Docking <laughs> everybody was talking about him that day too and he loved it yeah he made the news um, yeah so that's actually a new best practice is basically reuse stuff just get it back out and even if right. you can't reuse it again like SpaceX does with their boosters at the very least make part of launching a satellite. The um like like deorbiting the upper stage of the rocket like immediately. There's no reason to just leave your rocket parts up there anymore. Like you can right. you can attach stuff to it, propulsion systems, to get it back down into Earth's atmosphere to burn up at the if you're not going to reuse it. So that's a definite ba- best practice that's emerging for sure.
0: The Falcon worked though, right? Didn't that thing land safely? Dude, I
1: saw it with my own eyes. Yeah. I, I saw the heavy um, boosters land with my own eyes and he so cool. synchronized them. They came down at the same time and landed at the same time after launching He's a rocket into off. space. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure.
0: I mean that's really cool though. And and uh, I gotta hand it to that guy. He definitely Thinks of things that don't seem possible and somehow is able to make them possible.
1: I know. And that's, I mean, that's another thing too. Like he just, he, like he, there's a lot, a lot you can say about his personality, but some of his problem solving skills make things seem like so. Mm. It, it makes it look like you turn to everybody else and be like, why haven't you been doing this this whole time, too? Yeah. Like, for example, uh, the, the starship, the thing that's going to start ferrying people to the moon and beyond eventually, one of its things is going to be when it comes back down to Earth is to collect space junk on the way. Or, um the starlink satellites spaceX's starlink satellites they're all going to be able to autonomously move based on debris tracking data here on Earth, so they'll just be able to move themselves um there's just like just basic stuff that seems like why haven't we been doing this all along and i yeah. mean it's a it's a good question you know
0: uh it's been a while since you've fanboyed on Elon Musk I
1: know I've had some ups That's and downs old school stuff since then too. <laughs>
0: Uh, You know, I mentioned earlier that in 78, Skylab fell in Western Australia, and uh, what we can't do as human to say, well, you know, it fell in the Australian outback. It's very sparsely populated, (laughs) so it's all good. But there are people there, and there are ecosystems there, and it is nature and the planet, and it it is a big deal. Just because it didn't fall on New York City Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, downtown L.A. or something doesn't mean it wasn't a problem. It was a problem. And I think in 2019, um, NASA said that as much as 16% of that ISS is going to survive reentry when it eventually comes back down to Earth. 16%. Yeah.
1: So, when you have something like the ISS, whose ultimate fate is up in the air still, literally, um, Mm -hmm. you you have to plan to deorbit it. Like, you can't just leave something that big up there. Uh, it's, it would just create too much space debris. And other space stations like the Mir and China's uh, Tiangong 2, I think one and two space labs, both were brought down. Um, and some of this stuff is going to survive. Like you said, the the space stations, um, part of that is going to survive. Some of the Mir survived. Some of the Tiangong survived. And you you don't want that that reenactment of Skylab. Um, no. So they've figured out— that if they crash land these things into uh, like a really remote part of the ocean, probably it will be fine. And there's a point in the ocean, in the, in the South Pacific Ocean, called Point Nemo. And uh, NASA and the other space agencies have been landing, crash landing, deorbited enormous stuff there for decades. But it wasn't until 1992 that a, a survey engineer uh, named Vorye uh, Lukatala. Nice. Thank you. Uh, He's Croatian, I believe. Um, Used this brand new software. This is 1992. And triangulated the furthest spot from land in the world. And he said it's basically Point Nemo, this area that the space agencies have been using already for decades. They had it basically right on the money.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's 1,400 miles away from the nearest landmass. It's supposedly – the one point on Earth further away from any other piece of land. And uh, a little fun tidbit about uh, those that exact degree of longitude and latitude mm-hmm. is that H.P. Lovecraft uh, wrote about the old ones, where the old ones lived, and actually gave coordinates um, that were really, really close <laughs> yeah. to these actual calculated coordinates. Um, it's kind of great to think about that, but I also think if you – If you had a good enough flat map Mm -hmm. of the Earth, you could probably stand back and eyeball what looks like it's furthest away from anything, and you're probably close to Point Nemo. Yeah. Because that's what NASA did. Yeah,
1: that's basically what they did. And so this area, Point Nemo, I mean, the fact that it's called Point Nemo makes you think, like, man, they've been crash landing spacecraft and space stations there for decades. This must just be, like, the most amazing place to go tour in, like, a sub— But the thing is, is when you crash land something like a space station, the debris field it creates as it's coming into the ocean could be almost a thousand miles long. Um, And it's not like they hit the target every single time. So it's actually like a really huge, enormous, tens of thousands, if not millions of square miles wide um, area. That's what Point Nemo is. It's kind of a misnomer, actually.
0: Yeah, because I think people, like, when is it going to start poking its little head above the ocean surface? Right. Like a big stack of junk under there.
1: Exactly. Pretty cool, though. It is very cool. And also, if you're like, well, what about the fish? Do not worry. It turns out that Point Nemo is one of the least biodiverse parts of the ocean around. So they say. And get this, Chuck. You want a little cherry on top of our Sunday here?
0: I would love that. I always love the cherry on
1: top. 99% Invisible has not done an episode on Point Nemo.
0: In your face, Mr. Mars. Beat him to it. (laughs) That's awesome. There's a a recent episode that they did on uh, the movie theater Megaplex history that's
1: really great. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's 99% Invisible. Yeah. Uh, You got anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Well, if you want to know more about space junk, just start reading about it. There's a lot of really great articles out there. Uh, And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail.
0: Uh, I'm going to call this what the writer called it, My Husband is Jealous of Josh and Chuck. Oh, okay. I hope you guys are both well. I wanted to share with you this stuff you should know is having an uh, unpleasant effect on my marriage. (laughs) You see, my husband works nights, and while I'm a strong, independent person who could hold my own... I still like to have a little background noise to soothe me to sleep. Most nights that means falling asleep to the dulcet tones of maybe how the Black Panther Party worked or origami, uh, colon folding goodness. Every morning when my husband gets home, he begrudgingly acknowledges the other men in the room and pauses my app. <laughs> However, we hit a breaking point recently when he returned to find the stuff you should know in complete compendium of mostly interesting things book open on his pillow and, with me snuggled against it comfortably. <laughs> Enraged, he tossed it on the floor and we exchanged words. Oh boy. So, yeah, you could say my husband is super jelly of Josh and Chuck. All that to say, here's a big thank you for keeping me company and helping me, uh, helping this gal sleep tight every night. Lots of love to my main squeezes, uh, Ray, she,
1: hers from Phoenix. All right, Ray. Um, hopefully, that was mostly tongue in cheek. I think so. (laughs) I hope so. I don't want to be a problem in anybody's marriage, you know? No, just our own. Right. Um, Well, thanks a lot, Ray, and sleep tight as always. Hopefully you guys can work it out. Maybe just get him to read the Stuff You Should Know book, and he'll be like, no, I want the book tonight. And that's what your problems will be. Yeah,
0: that's the easiest thing is to convert him. Exactly.
1: Uh, And we have ways. You can sign up for our um, brainwashing newsletter if you want some tips. That's right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us like Ray did or sign up for our brainwashing newsletter, you can send us an email. Send it off to podcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Radio, visit the iHeartRadio
1: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.